Hello, it's Denise from Women Beyond a Certain Age. We are so lucky today because I reached out to a Facebook friend, Deborah Freeman, and like texted her and out of the blue, I said, could you be on my podcast? And she said, yes. And I thought, holy, she doesn't know me. And I thought, how lucky for me. So our guest today is Deborah Freeman. Now, hello, Deborah. Hey, how are you? So I'm so grateful you said yes. Thank you. I am wonderful. And let me tell you, I have to tell people, tell them a couple of things about you. And then I have some questions for you. I've known Deborah from Facebook and I know everybody, um, you know, people love to bash Facebook and I know it has its flaws. But if I didn't go to Facebook, especially since I'm not out working every day anymore, Deborah, I don't have, I, I wouldn't see the articles that you write. Do you see what I'm saying? I wouldn't see a whole bunch of young women that I think, to be perfectly honest, are changing food writing all for the better, okay? All for the better. And I don't think of you as a food writer. I think you are a food anthropologist, okay? Oh, wow, wow. I'm kidding you. <laughs> I read everything you sent to me and I thought, this child is an anthropologist. <laughs> so I just want people to know that. Now, let me read a little something about you. Remember how we talked for a bit about how I go on and on, okay? <laughs> That may have been a Deborah Freeman has written for outlets such as Plate Magazine, Epicurious, Garden and Gun, Pit Magazine, Gravy, Southern Grit Magazine, and Gastro Obscura. She has had her work featured in the Huffington Post and the New York Times and has done cultural commentary for BBC Radio and other international outlets. Freeman writes about the intersection of race, culture, and food. Oh my God! <laughs> that makes me sound really important. <laughs> you know what? You should sound important because you are important. Honey, I have to tell you, really. Now, let me tell you, and then I need to ask you about it because I have to tell people one more thing. Before I'd asked you to come on the podcast, you put a question again on Facebook. I'm not getting paid for Facebook. I just want people to know that. But I happen to, I get, I love reading when people post the magazine that they're in, or they tell me an award, you know, people say, I won this award, or I'm going to work for this. My God, it's fantastic. You get all the food news you need in one spot in the morning. Mm -hmm. So when you had asked a question, and I don't remember what group it was in, or if it was just your private stream. Deborah, you said, I'm, I'm writing about yellow cake. What are people's memories of yellow cake? And I, this is all I want to say. And then we're, we'll talk about that again later. And then, because I want to talk to you about your ode to watermelon, is what I would <laughs> But I have to tell you, when you asked that question, and I read every single thing that people answered, and you know, Deborah, and I said this in mine, I had an Italian grandmother. She came to America after World War II during 50s when they weren't allowing many people in. And my grandfather married her, who was the second wife. She used to buy cake mixes of yellow cake mix. And I said mm -hmm. this earlier because mm -hmm. she, could, 
She thought that was the easiest thing in the world. And of course, she'd also, they'd had so few provisions in Italy during right. the war. So to come to America and you have this beautiful kitchen and you can buy the yellow cake mix in a box. And then right. you, she added stuff to it to make them Italian, amaretto and rum and stuff. And mm -hmm. I was so grateful for you to bringing that, you know, bringing that question up in my mind. So we're going to talk about your yellow cake mix. We'll tell people where they, your yellow cake, <laughs> where they can get it afterwards. But this is what I need to tell you. I read your fruitful journey, my watermelon summer. I read it twice because I thought this is the most charming story I've read and I don't know how long. And I still read. Thank you. I read your, oh, please. I'm not, I, if I seem like I'm gushing, I'm not really gushing. I was excited to hear your voice is really what it comes down to. So here's, so people will understand everything with that long introduction that I just said. <laughs> okay, and I know it was long-winded. Flattering. <laughs> no, tell us about your watermelon journey. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, such an interesting question. So, but first, thank you for being so gracious and so kind with the introduction. That's, that's really lovely. Um, well, let's see, the watermelon journey, it, it's pretty interesting. This probably started, I guess, two years ago uh, when I read about the Bradford watermelon, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. And so I read our, well, I think in Southern Living, actually. Um, and I ordered a watermelon and realized, oh, I've got to drive from Virginia to South Carolina to pick up this watermelon. Um, and so... <laughs> and so then, you know, as I started thinking about, I'm like, well, what are other watermelons that I don't know about? And so I enlisted my partner's foot, and uh, and he really took to it and spent days just hunting down <laughs> rare watermelons. I mean, we drove to Pennsylvania, we drove to Delaware, North Carolina. Well, you pretty much traverse the eastern seaboard for all of these really rare, rare watermelons. And that was before we even got to Bradford. <laughs> so, one thing. so you heard about Bradford from Southern Foodway, Southern Living Magazine? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, there's the article about it. Okay. And your partner's name is Josh. Mm -hmm. And we have to mention him because he takes the photographs for your articles. He does. And he's brilliant. And he's brilliant. And of course, then the guy goes on, you tell it, but goes on to grow these watermelons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Deborah, this right. is so continue. So you're 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 scoping out the landscape for a Bradford watermelon. Exactly. And so then, you know, what happens is is that he starts to collect seeds. And so he's saving the seeds. We're eating the watermelon, he's saving the seeds. And so a year ago, he's like, you know, I think it would be great if we grow these watermelons. I'm like, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> why why? I am from the city. I like asphalt. Like, I don't understand what's happening. Um, long story short, he uh, had a friend who knew a friend um, that basically was like, here, you can grow things here. And it was actually um, at Pal Womack Native American site uh, in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So he would drive an hour each way every day to hand water, hand pollinate um, <laughs> these watermelons. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. It looked like it was the 1800s out there because he was literally on his knees, you know, making sure that the, the vines were okay, 
occasionally I would play music for the watermelons. My mother told me that is what you should do. You should play music for plants. So I'm out there playing Etta James on in the whole people. Nice. Um, it, it was pretty, pretty over the top. And, and so it was just a really interesting experience. Um, you know, I learned about uh, what people call deer repellent, but what Fitz called, you know, he was like, hey, you know, to repel the deer, can you call this hardware shop and ask for deer urine? And it's like deer urine? I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. And he's like, no, please, just can you go ahead and call him? So, you know, hi, um, I'm looking for deer urine. And the guy just laughed me out of the, he was just like, ma'am, I've worked here 25 years. No one has ever asked me for deer urine. This is insane. I hope you have a great day. So, <laughs> and it that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty part of the story. It doesn't even work. <laughs> so it was a great experience. And um, we wound up growing about 100 really rare watermelons, some that had not been in Virginia before. And uh, we were able to sell some of those watermelons uh, to, to folks around the city and give it to chefs, which was really cool. And they did some things with it too. So it, it was a very uh, arduous experience, but it, it was really great too. Okay, this, but I will say this. When in your article, you said the reason that Bradford melons are, can't be shipped anymore is they're too delicate. Exactly. That so struck me, Deborah, and this is why. My father owned grocery stores, okay, in Marin County, little tiny grocery stores, beautiful markets. I shouldn't say tiny. They were beautiful before all the big chains came in and he eventually, mm -hmm. I mean, they were a union and stuff, but he sold out because, the, you know, because the food for less Kroger, you know, it was the writing was on the wall that mom and pop grocery stores in the, in the day and age of supermarkets was going south. But I can remember, see, the produce was different when I was a kid. I say this to people all the time because we didn't ship it from here all the way across the country. I'm 70 right. years old, Deborah. okay? So as a child, they were buying, which is what we're all trying to do, we, they bought more local. So my father's markets were in Marin County and we went to the Salinas Valley and we went to, you know, Sonoma. Mm -hmm. Fruit and meat, everything tasted better because it didn't have to stay fresh for three months, okay? That's right. And in produce, when you go into produce stores now, which is, and I've lucked out, just, we retired and we're in Ventura, Deb, which is an hour and a half out of LA. I'm surrounded by Driscoll strawberries and Duda Farms mm. and celery. So I can go to the farmer's market almost any day in, wow. in Ventura. And there's farm stands. The difference in the produce, the flavor is outstanding. So when you, after Josh, God bless him. I feel like I should send, I want to send Josh a present for him. When you were eating the watermelon, tell me about the flavor. Oh my goodness. So legitimately, it was like I had never eaten a watermelon before. It, it was like what I, what I had been eating for years and years and years was kind of sort of but not really at all it was so incredibly flavorful juicy sweet um the flesh was not you know mushy it was the firm flesh and, and it was just really outstanding because I had never experienced that because I been doing you know my watermelons from the grocery store yeah. you know and so so this was incredibly new to me and so then 
that obviously spun off to tasting different watermelons and noticing the differences in a yellow meat watermelon versus a red meat watermelon. Why does this taste like apricot? Why does this have different notes in it? It was really fascinating. And, and it's, you can't go back to eating produce from a grocery store. You just, it's, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Now this, I want to hear you. I want to say this is, I, my grandfather came to San Francisco in the big city of San Francisco, had a patch of land the size of like a normal small bedroom in an apartment. Mm-hmm. But he grew tomatoes, lettuce, had a rabbit hutch. You know, he was, and I have never tasted lettuce like I had out of my grandfather's garden. Okay, and sandy soil, the limestone lettuce in San Francisco, the fog, mm. not that much sun. But and I say that to people, and their eyes roll to the back of their head because they're not very interested. <laughs> okay, they don't care. Okay, well they but, don't know. They don't know, but I mean, and when I have to buy lettuce, I buy, I buy baby gem lettuces right around on the corner at a farm stand. So, and my husband says to me, yeah, I know it's, he says, Jesus, where did you buy this lettuce? I I said, from Miguel on the corner, you know, he's a big farm stand. It tastes so divine. Most lettuce to me in grocery stores, and it feels like you describing watermelon, tastes like nothing. You know, it's like nothing. We eat it because we need the fruit. Exactly. Fiber, but it doesn't taste like anything. Exactly. Exactly. It's really remarkable. I mean, even any pros that you can speak of, I mean, even when we were uh, kind of hunting down corn a little bit and hunting down, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it right now, of course, but, you know, tasting corn that really had just been picked an hour ago. Yes. And then the understanding that, you know, the longer it sits before you make it, the the sugars are going to dissipate. It's not going to be a sweet. And it, it was shocking to me. Right. And it just completely, it was like the light bulb turned on. It was like, I can't go back. But it, it, if, you, if anyone can ever get really fresh produce, really fresh fruit and vegetables, they, they, it'll change your life. It change. will legitimately change your life. Now answer me this. Tell us what you did. Tell the audience what you did with the watermelon with chefs. because this is fascinating. Yeah, so a couple of different things. Uh, There were a couple of chefs uh, that we turned it into hot sauce and barbecue sauce. So so it was a really interesting thing how they, you know, basically cooked the watermelon down and it didn't, it sounds weird, right? So watermelon hot sauce, watermelon barbecue sauce, it sounds bizarre, but I promise you it's not. Uh, Particularly the the watermelon um, barbecue sauce. Because that actually, what, like, it was so delicate and it was sweet, but there was a little bit of heat in it. It, it, was, it was really phenomenal. And the hot sauce was spicy, but that watermelon, you could taste that watermelon and it cut through. It was the most unique, but still really flavorful and beautiful thing. It, it was shocking. And I, you know, we were lucky enough to work with a couple of chefs and follow it and sell some of those that sold out quicker than we ever anticipated to um but it, it really was one of the most unique experiences because I've never thought about watermelon and hot sauce ever in life so um so it was it was a great experience now how did you decide to be a food writer I know you have a college degree I mean how did you get into it Deb what is because you said you're a city girl so Absolutely. you know I know exactly I mean 
I went to chef school and my mother's words were, isn't that why we sent you to college the first time so you wouldn't end up in a kitchen? She was mm. horrified, okay? Mm. And she had a point. She had a point. How did your journey start and get you and get you to be so clever to get your partner to grow watermelons <laughs> for two hours? That's what I want to know. Well, what, what's funny is, is that um, Southern Grit, that's actually, that's Josh. He, he runs Southern Grit. And so what's funny is, that's how we met. I sent him an article for the magazine and he liked the article. And so that was probably, gosh, 2017 or 2018. So it hasn't been that long. This has not been, I don't have a storied career in food writing or anything like that. Um, my background is actually in politics. Um, and this is something that I started doing on the side and it just kind of exploded. And so, you know, I really figured out that for me, it was important to tell these stories. They're not being told. And so I primarily write about African-American food, but um, in Southern food ways as well. But it's just so interesting that there's so much that we take for granted and never think about where did this come from? Who started this? Why, why is anyone talking about this? And so that really became a passion of mine. It's just grown and grown and grown. Um, and to the point where I just, this is the most fascinating topic. I am like, I, I enjoy telling that to everyone. Like you mentioned, the delegate group, that just came from a random conversation, but it was a thought process like, well, wait a minute, you know, I can't be the only one. So what is this about? And I did, well, I don't want to jump ahead because I'm, I'm just okay, kind of... We're, we're going to talk about yellow cake in a minute. Now, let me tell you, which is why I think this is so fascinating. And, I, and, and yeah. when I first got to Los Angeles, so I'm from San Francisco, Chinese, Italians, okay? That's really, that's was the demographics growing up. But then I moved to LA, totally different. Hispanic, lots of Black family, lots of Black people. Sure. So... I'm about 30 something, 33, I become a caterer. We had yachts, Deborah, so it's all the high end. We're going for the high end party. And no matter where I would go to talk to a hostess in Beverly Hills, she'd say, well, we like your company, Denise, but we've been using Marvin for years. And I said, okay. And then I found out that Marvin was an African-American man who had worked on the trains. Okay. Then worked at the White House, and then I know, and then moved wow. to Beverly Hills and opened his own catering business. Oh, I never met him. I heard about him. I called his office once or twice. I think I talked to him once. I don't know what happened to him now. It's my quest is, is after talking to you, I thought I have to find out what happened to Marvin. <laughs> but here's the thing. I don't know if people realize, and maybe they do now, thank God, because there's so much new information bubbling, but the history of um, Black Americans in service and in the culinary arts is goes back further than anybody else. Do you know what I mean? Because Absolutely. they were the, I mean, that's, people say it's tough and I go, who do you think was cooking in the kitchen? Exactly. I love Uncle Nearest, the bourbon. I mean, the story, mm -hmm. it was his recipe. He was making the bourbon. So I think that this is all part of hope, hopefully an awakening to people, to our culture. People have to look beyond 
craft American sliced cheese. <laughs> Look a little, dig a little. Exactly. So my first intersection with Black American cuisine was Marvin. Mm. A young man came to work for me and worked for me for a number of years. And his name was Andrew. And I, and he kept still get in touch with me. He was a genius. He went on to do tech and make some money. He got out of chefing. He was much smarter than I was. But <laughs> first time I ever said to someone, I said, Andrew, you should look into African-Americans on trains have stories that are not being told. Okay. They are mm -hmm. stories not being told. Now I've looked and I look at Amazon sometimes and there are a few like a, a granddaughter of a, a steward tells these stories and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, it's just so fascinating to me because there is an answer to how things got here. No, absolutely. And it's interesting that you mentioned trains. Um, I am writing an article that'll be out next next year. Um, that talked about the waiter carriers of, of waiter carriers of Gordonsville, um, and basically these are women who sold fried chicken and other, you know, desserts and things like that at a train stop in Gordonsville. So when the train stop, this is pre-air conditioning, so everyone has their windows down. So coming into the train, our smells of the, you know, chicken and biscuits and you know cakes and pies and all this sort of thing and so those black women were really entrepreneurs and um actually that it was that that town Gorgeville was nicknamed the fried chicken capital of the world um and it, it was just it was famous just because of what food and so you know eventually with modernization you know that died out but that's such an interesting thing that a lot of people don't know about or talk about. And you know when I, fabulous. And you know what I always think of? The only, re and I say this and I don't mean, if I, I'm not male bashing, okay? But I've been a friend of Tony Tipton Martin for years. I remember when mm. she couldn't get the Aunt Jemima Code published, okay? I mean, she would, she was wow. determined. I'm talking about probably the beginning of the 90s. Okay. Oh, wow. And I, had a card and I came home and I said to Cindy, we, I'd seen her at um, uh, IACP. Now, fast forward, of course, it's opened up a total channel of, of information and for people, and it's wonderful. Now, and Tony to me was really kind of the leader of that, you know, Absolutely. And people. Oh, I'm Jessica Harris. I mean, I'm not just. Of course. When we think of the, like the women that were selling the chicken to the train guys, you know, there would have been women on those trains cooking that food if they'd been allowed to. But women, hello, the recent male yep. chefs, French or whatever, um, Italian, whatever, it's because they could get the job. Exactly. Michel Richard, lovely French man that who really brought such beautiful food to Los Angeles got every award under the world, died too young, but he was as French as French could be. And he got this big, big awards. And I was invited to some of these dinners and he would always put his hand on his heart and say, my mama taught me to cook. And mm. I used to always think to people, well, of course his mother taught him to cook. <laughs> Obviously. You know what? So in the history of food, it was the women that were doing the cooking. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I'm tired of it. So I want you to write about women cooks. I want you to forget it. We're not going after Marvin after all. Now, um, let me 
tell you, I want people to know. Now, where can they read? Deborah sent me some of these. So you have uh, Southern Foodways, where some of your articles are. So if they go to that, then they can uh, mm -hmm. put your name in and probably come up. I know that you said that next month is the yellow cake story coming out. Yeah, any day now, actually, for Food 52. And so I am, you know, I'm checking my email constantly to see when it's up. I cannot wait until that's published. That, that has really been one of my favorite articles I've written okay. in, in a while. Yeah. What did you find out, madam? Now, what did you find out about yellow cake? Yeah. So, yeah, what was interesting about yellow cake, I, you know, this all started from a conversation. Uh, basically, I'm like, you know, yellow cake is my favorite. And so uh, once again, uh, my partner, Josh, was like, yellow is a is not a flavor, it is a color. And I'm like, no, no, is a flavor, is the flavor. I'm sorry, you're out of your mind. Um, and so then it kind of sparked this debate. And so, you know, I went on Twitter and did an informal poll, much like on Facebook. And uh, about 300 people responded with memories and photographs of their families, um, basically, you know, grandmothers that made this either, you know, every Sunday or for special occasions. And just some of them were just really, really beautiful memories that I think was most interesting. I mean, obviously the history of yellow cake and where that comes from, you know, from, from Europe, that was interesting too. And that's in the article. Um, but what was really fascinating was there just seemed to be this thread that connected so many people in the Black community and the association of yellow cake with family and with home and with, you know, just feeling safe and secure. And so it was really lovely to know that that wasn't just my experience, but that experience, you know, transcended throughout the entire community. And it's just, it's one of those sort of, you know, non-tangible ties that people who don't know each other, who live you know, completely different lives, you know, in completely different places, but have the exact same experience and the exact same emotions um, that, that I did. And, and that was just really special. And so many people, you know, sent me messages saying, yeah, thank you, I'm going to make a yellow cake or thank you, I'm going to call my grandmother and I'm going to you know, ask her to write down her recipe. And that is, that is what really the biggest reward for me. Now, how do you like your yellow cake? What, what frosting do you like? Oh, there's only one frosting. Okay. <laughs> and that would be chocolate. There's only, that, I mean, I don't even know what you're talking about besides okay. chocolate. <laughs> Two layers, chocolate, buttercream, frosting, okay. and, and it's perfection. Now, I'm with you, and let me tell you, I said this when you asked this question. See, I went to a French cooking class. This is in a, in a gymnasium at a little crappy school like that I'm in, in Marin County. <laughs> I, it costs like $10 for three classes, if that tells you something. Oh my but, goodness. <laughs> so many years ago, this is in the early 70s. And the French woman, she made us go around and answer a question, what's your favorite cake? And I said, yellow cake. And she said, <laughs> Oh, and you are wrong. And she made this big oh scene. I'll never forget it because my best friend was sitting next to me, and Carol says under her breath, "Wrong answer." <laughs> my grandmother, that I told you, would add rum to it or amaretto to this cake mix, and put chocolate frosting, or even just—I'm sorry—even just powdered sugar on it, Ooh. and that cake was out of this world. So fast forward, the French woman who said exactly like Josh, that is a color. 
not a flavor. <laughs> then when I went to cooking school and I'm learning to make genoise and different cakes, I'm thinking this is yellow cake. That's right. Okay, this is a butter yellow cake, but we just in America, we call it yellow cake. But I thought this is basically a very classic cake. I'm the same way. I love it. Now, when I watch old movies, because I was a food stylist for so many years, I'm always looking at food scenes, okay? That's what interests me. I'm fascinated by food scenes in movies. And all I kept thinking about with your yellow cake was if you watch old Walt Disney films, so now they're in color, whereas in black and white, we didn't know. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other thing. And I, I've done some research on this because <laughs> I just go down the rabbit hole on useless bits of information. <laughs> but I can remember in like the Church Bazaar and Pollyanna and in all these Disney films, there's always a cake scene because mm. there was a way to share your grandmother or your family story or the love, okay? Look at how you really look. Movies always have birthday scenes. Yeah, yeah. Writers write birthday scenes because the cake is either a disaster and someone failed and the kids- That's right. And I say this to people and I and the cocktail parties and they're drinking their drinks thinking, get away from this woman. How can I get away from this woman? Like, who cares, bitch? But I care. Okay. And I think, and I sometimes in my mind, though my grandmother made yellow cakes, my mother at the bakery, when she bought our, my mother, when we got a few bucks, Deborah, she was never making a cake again. Okay. <laughs> she was shaking the dust off her poor roots, honey. And we went to the bakery and we always got like white cake or chocolate cake. Mm -hmm. But I, my grandmother made these yellow cakes. And to me, it's one of my, the happiest memories in my life. So that's why when you touched on it, I think it's phenomenal. I think you're touching yeah. on subjects that people do want to know the history of. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that's what I'm doing. And I hope that I'm creating a moment where they have a memory that's associated, a positive memory, obviously, but a memory associated with whether it's yellow cake or collard greens or barbecue or whatever that thing is. I, I really want the reader walk away going, hmm, I remember this, you know, and hopefully to continue whatever that dish is or wherever that food is, uh, because that's how these things continue, you know, particularly in the, in the black community, you know, where I've been researching things, so many things are via oral history versus being written down. And so, you know, my encouragement is to write these recipes down, to talk to your grandparents, to really, you know, understand why this tastes a certain way, because once the, you know, people pass on, so do, you know, the expertise and, 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 and the recipes. And so that's how we can live on and, and sustain our, our memories, our legacy. You said that beautifully, Deborah. I have never made, I've only made raviolis a few times and they were not as good as my grandmother's. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not I tried. But I mean, they're okay. But yeah. I have two sisters, neither of them cook, both of them gorgeous and successful and stuff. And they'll taste one of those raviolis and go, mm. <laughs> and that, mm. 
Like not, and they're saying these aren't as good as just with their pretty little mouths and inside. I think you get the kitchen and try. I think that's, I think your point about writing recipes down, especially because when you cooked with someone of another generation, and of course, Cindy and I know this one, we'd have young people that just came to work with us as interns. They just don't have the feel of food yet, Deborah. Do you know what I mean? They don't. Absolutely. uh, they don't have it. Like, I mean, if you make biscuits, which I was lucky enough, when we made biscuits with Natalie Dupree one afternoon, she just turned to us and she would always say, I don't mean to growl, give me more flour. (laughs) (laughs) Because we had measured out from her cookbook, a recipe, but here she was in California, different weather, different day. That's right. That's right. White lily flour, but it wasn't, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when people really know how to cook, there's such a feel to it. But if we, it's yeah. at least the recipe is a guideline yeah. to tell us how to get there. No, for sure. I mean, there are so many moments that my, my grandmother, she's passed away that I wish I had said, how does she make her collard How I have tried for years to make her cornbread unsuccessfully. It's never correct. It's never, something is always a little off and it's just you know, those are things that I wish I could recreate and, you know, taste that again. And, and so that is something that's so important. And so, and I believe that we, one day I might get, get right one of these recipes, but <laughs> fingers, fingers crossed on that, but that will really create such a moment, you know, where it's like that she, she's there with me, if that makes sense. That, oh, total sense. Tell us what's coming up in your future. Oh my goodness. What do you, yeah. what are you doing? I know you've got, you're always got something in the hopper, but what <laughs> else, what I know you may have, do you have a radio show? Did I read that, that you're working on? What, yeah. what you doing? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working on a podcast uh, that will be out um, probably late winter, early spring next year. And so uh, I'm, I'm really excited to give it get a chance to explore these stories but in an auditory way because a lot of times when you write articles a lot of stuff that you have loved to keep, you know to keep gets cut out because of space and that sort of thing and so this will really be an opportunity to to really explore and really delve and actually hear from experts and chefs and historians um and so i i can't wait to formally announce that and so that'll be coming out soon uh the history of fried chicken that I mentioned that earlier that will be out I believe in April and so uh the origins of that might surprise you I'll I'll say that and um yeah I want people to know that you're going to come back when the podcast is up and running Deborah so that we can tell people and I cannot thank you enough for your time today because I know how valuable it is when you are a writer and I wish you the best. And I want you to know, it's just your watermelon story. And this will be up to Cindy. Cindy, we have a beautiful photograph. We have several photographs of you. Okay, Deborah. <laughs> one that you sent us that is just like gorgeous. It's the head. It's gorgeous. But I need, and no one else can see this. Cindy, I need you to see this picture of Deborah hugging the watermelon. In Delaware on the side because of where it goes. You look like it's your baby. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at this after I read the article because I hadn't seen it at first, and you're so perfect, and it's stage, not stage, but 
it really you're behind a gas a gas pump that has the same color but the way you're holding that watermelon i wish i was that watermelon i wish i was a baby that you love. it's the dearest thing i've ever seen not to mention you look gorgeous but that that is really that is so cute and so pure and i like it so much it, it warms my heart that there can be you know we live in such a difficult time deborah you just yeah. i have to only take in most of the time what I call good news. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I can't, I, I send my money to organizations that are dealing with the bad news, but I find that this was just, meeting you has been uplifting to me. That's all I can say. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I can't wait to come back and, and talk to you again. This has been phenomenal. Thank you. All right. Now for anyone that wants to reach out to Deborah before that, Cindy puts everything on our Facebook page, Women Beyond a Certain Age. We will have links to some of Deborah's work, to Deborah herself. Um, what else? If you want to reach Cindy and I, it's womenbeyond at icloud.com. If you have a criticism, I suggest you take it somewhere else. <laughs> Oh, I guess that's not what I'm supposed to say. No, we would love, no, I don't even want constructive criticism. I don't think, at this age, I don't think I need anybody telling me what to do. So, but if you have a comment and, or one of our guests, I'll tell you it, Deborah, that we really appreciate. People that have listened to us, one of my friends said to me recently, who was in PR for years, she says, you're, I see it. People, you're growing by leaps and bounds. How are you doing that? I, I said, I think it's by accident. <laughs> I don't think that it's, but I, I mean, no, we don't have a business plan or anything. It's me and Cindy. What do you want? But I'll tell you something. People, women especially, respond to other women's stories because you know what? We're all in it together. And if we can help or inspire each other or lift each other up isn't that what we're here for i mean i don't know that's what i think we're here for no, that's exactly we're right we're not here for a new couch and wall-to-wall -wall carpeting though <laughs> everybody tells us that that's really not what we're here for well miss deborah thank you so much cindy as always thank you for everything you do and again women beyond a certain age our facebook page we have a website also same name um they call that a brand but women beyond a certain age the facebook page we get interesting conversations sometimes and really that's where we put up new podcasts every Sunday. So, Deborah, thank you again. And thank, thank you so much. And we're going to talk to you again. We're going to stalk you and find you again. <laughs> Absolutely. Please do. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.